This is Why Libertarian, the show dedicated to telling the stories of libertarians new and old, promoting libertarian values, and fighting against authoritarians, statists, feds, and anyone else who would like to steal your liberty and freedom. I am Matthew Strzok, and I would like to thank you for tuning in to this episode. Enjoy. Here we go. It is Thursday. This is Why Libertarian. I am Matt. Uh, We are live with another uh, Natural Rights Talk episode. So this is our bi-weekly series where we talk about uh, natural rights, sovereignty, kind of the uh, backstory of how uh, the law uh, evolved here in the United States. And then uh, simultaneously, or not simultaneously, but um, gradually and then all at once, all of the legal folks who were supposed to know the law completely forgot about it um, and and don't know what they're talking about anymore. So I, we go through all of those step by step. Uh, before we get rolling, like, comment, subscribe, share, notification bell, hit the retweet, uh, get this out there. This is fantastic information. Um, really, you know, stuff people think uh, wrong about all the time because they just don't know uh, what the actual answers are. And then a quick reminder, uh, definitely connect with me. Uh, I always get this wrong. Over here, Why Libertarian on Linktree. Um, check out all of the outlets that I'm on, especially the ones that are on blockchain because they are decentralized, they are censorship resistant, and I am doing everything I can to start to build communities on those platforms because of those very reasons. Um, so definitely join me there, you know, check out those. And uh, I'm going to have some more information about some fun stuff, activities that we're going to be doing that's going to help compel people to want to be on the blockchain. So, um, And then next week, Monday through Thursday, as usual, I am live at 7 p.m. I actually have Jerry, Jeremy Kaufman from library.com will be joining me. Uh, and we will talk Odyssey. We will talk about the Freedom Project and a couple of other things that Jeremy's involved in. So that's going to be a fantastic interview. That'll be Tuesday next week. Um, but I have a full week plan. So definitely tune in Monday through Thursday. All right. Without further ado, I am rejoined by Josiah Hinkle. Josiah, how are you, sir? Hey, how's it going, Matt? I am very good. Very good for to remind everyone. Josiah is with the American Natural Rights. I always get this wrong. It's Foundation, right? Yep. I, I want to call it a federation for some reason, but uh, no, no, it is nope. not a federation. <laughs> the American Natural Rights Foundation. Um, yep. So uh, last week we talked kind of uh, about the first level of hierarchy of law. We went through some of the baseline kind of foundational things. This is our second episode on um, hierarchy of law. So what what are we going to start off on here as far as I think we have these concepts of what honor and dishonor that we're going to look at. Yep. Yeah. So um, actually, before we get started, if you don't mind, I want I just wanted to point out um, in the last podcast, um, I was talking about um, the civil law. And um, at one point I used Brazil as an example. And I just wanted to correct myself because I happened to say that they would have a degree in canon law, but it would actually be civil law. So my apologies. Mm-hmm. I didn't actually mean to say canon law. So anyways, uh, just wanted to correct that before we got started here. But um, we so cleared the record. Last, You're good. <laughs> I know. If you remember last time we uh, we left off with like the American political societies had um, developed the philosophy to the point where the natural law was at the focus. Yep. And um, so um, accord, and remember, according to the natural law, um, man, that man was supposed to be free from any superior power on earth, you know, except for those laws prescribed by nature. 
And so honor and dishonor is a concept as old as the law itself, but uh, essentially it's the process that uh, free people in the state of nature would use to interact with each other. And uh, so to, to tell you about that, we got to first talk about what is a presentment. So a presentment uh, is the act of presenting to view or consciousness, something set forth, presented or exhibited. A presentment occurs when something is brought to your attention. For example, you are given a bill for services, you are accused of causing some harm, or you are notified of a situation. So there's three ways to um, honor a presentment and two ways to dishonor a presentment. Mm -hmm. And so the three ways to honor are accord and satisfaction, um, conditional acceptance and rejection without dishonor. And the two ways to dishonor are um, through argument or through silence. Mm. So for example, Joe makes a presentment to, to, and um, Sally does one of the following. Um, she honors by accepting the presentment without recourse and then satisfies whatever is demanded in the presentment. For example, Joe presents a bill for services, Sally pays the bill. Mm -hmm. And we call this one accord and satisfaction. So the second thing she might do to honor the presentment is called conditional acceptance. Sally honors by accepting the presentment, but with conditions. Effectively, this is a counteroffer from Sally. And um, let's see. Um, Joe would then accept the counteroffer as a new presentment from Sally. For example, Joe offers his house for sale. Sally accepts the offer provided that the house is first painted. And the okay. third, rejection without dishonor. Sally rejects the presentment because it is defective. For example, Joe presents a bill for services. Sally returns the bill because there's an error. Perhaps the price is off and um, she'll accept the bill once the, the error is corrected. Mm -hmm. um, so let's see, the two ways to dishonor, there's argument, Sally rejects the bill. There's no basis for rejecting the bill. The arguments have no relevancy to the presentment, often ad hominems or irrelevant comments against Joe. Um, accompany the rejection or through silence. Sally simply does not respond to the presentment, but remains silent. The presentment is thus dishonored. Mm -hmm. This sounds very much like, um, so in, in my daily life, I, am, I, I work in the insurance world. Uh, and so this very much sounds like the basics of contract law, right? So um, if someone is essentially presenting you with uh, a demand or a request or something like that, um, you have the ability to respond accordingly, and this is basically outlining all of the different ways that the, the counterparty, the person on the other end of the contract, or not necessarily a contract yet because nothing has been agreed upon, but the person on the other end of the presentment can then respond in terms of whether or not they accept it, uh, they accept it but with conditions, they reject it um, with, you know, uh, certain shortcomings with, with that are associated with it, right? Um, reject for cause. Right. Uh, or number four, the dishonorable reject, rejecting would be like, you know, you smell funny. I'm not going to do this. Mm -hmm. Right. right. Um, and then the last <laughs> one would just be ignoring them, right? Ignoring like saying, yeah. yeah, I'm not happy with it. Just I'm not even going to say anything. Right. Mm -hmm. um, okay. All right. So that seems pretty so basic. So before... how does that factor into court? Well, so I was going to say, before you'd file a lawsuit against someone, uh, you'd have what's called the um, uh, administrative process and or the proceedings. Mm -hmm. And so just like before, Joe makes a presentment to Sally. If Sally honors the presentment, Joe acts accordingly. So long as each party honors the other's presentments, the process can move forward to resolution. 
If Sally dishonors Joe, then Joe grants grace and repeats the presentment. And remember, this grace is a remnant of the Christian moral, morality, you know, interwoven into our system. So if Sally um, dishonors Joe a second time, Joe then makes an affidavit of the history of presentments. And an affidavit is just a statement of facts said under oath. Um, the affidavit is given to a notary public. The notary is requested to make a formal presentment to Sally for Joe. Um, and let's see here. Uh, if Sally dishonors, or let's see, sorry. <laughs> and uh, if Sally dishonors the presentment, the notary grants grace and repeats the presentment. If Sally dishonors the notary a second time, the notary makes a certified history of the presentments, and the history is given to Joe. So at this point, Joe and Sally's administrative process is complete. The affidavit of Joe, along with the certificate of the notary, now becomes the basis for a court action against Sally. So does that make sense? So that's basically saying if um, Joe is essentially making one of these presentments and uh, Sally... Uh, decides to so this kind of goes through the first scenario is just simple it's everything's taken care of we don't really have to worry about anything right right it, which it, is the key moves to which conclusion is... right mm -hmm. but now we have to go through all of the different iterations of what has to happen if sally responds with dishonor to right. that presentment right and so right. it so... seems like there's a couple of different steps that have to happen here before we proceed to an actual court proceeding well, right. You can actually think of the court process as a formal series of presentments. Uh, of presentments. Yeah. Each time a presentment is made, that that is a court paper is filed. The responding party has an opportunity to honor or dishonor the presentment. The response, whether honorable or dishonorable in turn, becomes a presentment. Mm -hmm. So your objective is to never dishonor the other party's presentment. And if the other party persists in argument or silence, you can stay in honor while um, by refusing his arguments for cause stating the cause and giving him an opportunity to um, cure the defects. If he refuses to stop arguing, you stay in honor as he continues in dishonor. So while you might be thinking of a court process, you know, the court process, because that's what we were just talking about, um, think for a second about a time before there were courts, right? Maybe there was a tribe or a, like a neighborhood or a local community or something that you'd present the evidence of the proceedings to and explain the situation, you know, um, and you do this to show how your liberty was violated, right? right. And um, by doing this, you'd kind of secure a sort of um, social legitimacy, right? That would justify your use of force to restore your li your um, liberty, right? Mm -hmm. Like if an unsuspecting, you know, unaware third party was just to happen to come upon the situation after the fact, not knowing what happened before, you know, mm -hmm they would obviously judge you for your use of force against that individual. Right. So <clears throat> um, doing this also might even inspire others to act, you know, for your just cause, right? They don't want mm -hmm. that person in the, in the community to be doing what they're doing. You know, whether it happened to me, it could happen to them or, you know. Yeah. So, um, but of course, to a certain degree, we have to, um, we have to compromise because in the state of nature, we don't, have a means to enforce our rights without risking, you know, worse consequences. Mm -hmm. So like um, things like expense or property damage, or like imagine if you were captured, right? And enslaved, or maybe even just killed, you know? Mm -hmm. So men leave the state of nature and enter into political society in order to better secure their rights, right? Um, so if you're like a natural human being, right? And in, um, in the state of nature, 
and uh, you're self-governing and all that, and someone defrauds you, you know, what, what would you do to secure your liberty? Mm-hmm. Would you use force, you know? Well, uh, so, so you're basically saying that, well, so the first thing I'm taking away here is that in any one of these proceedings, the goal is ultimately to retain honor, right? Like in that mm-hmm. proceeding, because that w- that's what gives your, I guess I'll call it a claim, maybe I'm using the wrong word, but that's what gives your claim some legitimacy, right? right? As opposed to if you... Uh, actively or inadvertently move into a place of dishonor that you risk ruining the legitimacy of your claim. Right, right. And and the way that this works is because then we don't need courts. Everyone is able to work out every situation because they're all acting honorably. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Like if, yeah. if you have brought it to my attention that I have somehow... Uh, you know, done some kind of thing like like I damaged your property or or some, you know, whatever it is um, that I've been interfered with some right of yours, then bringing it to my attention should compel a good, reasonable person to to correct it and to compensate for it. So correct, right. it means don't do it again and compensate for it is, you know, make up for how you have done it. Mm-hmm. Right. And this yep. you see what I'm saying, rather than trying to get away with it. Right. And this is like, this is, yeah, so. um, So what you're basically saying is that um, courts effectively are there to deal with situations where individuals do not act honorably uh, toward each other. Um, Or where there's a disagreement as to the fact, which is, again, why we have the jury to help decide those things. Okay, yep. So um, like I was saying, you know, imagine you use force against that person who defrauded you. Right. Well, um, consider the political society that they might be a part of. Right. Would that political society let their, you know, citizen be harmed by some foreign power? No, you know, they definitely would not suffer that. So despite your independent state, you know, determining that that fraud is illegal and that it's deserving of certain punishments, um, you know, or, or even that, you know, you determined that it was against God's law using your your natural you know faculty of reason as a natural human being mm-hmm. you know they have armies like what do you have you know and so essentially like the the idea of man in the state of nature being able to secure his rights it's not it's not as reasonable you know we have to compromise to a certain degree so um and in fact that's even the very reason why we continued the states and created the federal government in the first place was because we recognized this fragile state of nature where you know men risk men have great risk in securing their freedom and liberty mm. yeah um, yes so without any superior power on earth to tell us what to do honor and dishonor is basically the process that any any person would use to work out any situation with someone else Okay. Okay. So um, next, I guess if, if you're ready, I'll just keep going and tell you about the next stuff. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I mean, it, it kind of lays the foundation for essentially why, you know, a more formalized process of dispute resolution is, is where, it, where it necessarily would be required versus where it wouldn't necessarily be required. Yeah. Well, it's like the key is this, right? If, if everyone is acting honorably, every situation can be worked out 
the only time that the situation can't be worked out is when people aren't acting honorably. And so if they're not acting, or with exception of the um, rejection for cause, because like I said, there could be a disagreement, right? Mm -hmm. um, but essentially anyone who is not acting honorably basically demands that the society act in order to correct, you know, basically that individual who is deciding not to act with honor, mm -hmm. that is, utilizing this system which is just the foundational system for how humans should interact with each other mm -hmm. um is basically calling calling forth you know the social power to decide the matter for the person who's acting in honor the person who's trying their best to be like hey did you know that there was a thing did you know you ordered food and i'm a waitress and or maybe i'm the owner of the building or whatever and uh, or the business and uh, you know you ordered food and you ate the food and and now you're trying to leave but I, i'm trying to present you with a bill and you have to pay it you know yeah. the society is basically coming out of the fact that that dishonor is existing is that if that makes sense yeah so it's like yeah. if we all want to be free in the state of nature we all should desire and should strive to always act honorably because then we have no need for a political society to exist with exception of these things, how there are literally other political societies that are, have standing armies that would happily come at you if you were just an individual. Right. So, yeah. No, that does make sense. Okay. So, so um, moving on, we're looking at and and um, why why make this distinction the the difference between people versus person? Oh, okay. Well, uh, well, I was going to explain that essentially. The way that the law sees it is um, there's what's in and of nature, okay? And this would be called the law. And then there's everything else, which would be fiction. Mm -hmm. And um, in other words, because it doesn't come from nature, it's not a part of the law. And because it's not a part of the law, it's not real. And because it's not real, it's called, le it's, it's actually termed legal fiction. Okay. So um, as a consequence, since governments also don't exist in nature, like you can't look out in nature and see where there's a government, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're also not real. They are mm -hmm. um, made up in the mind of men, right? And so um, this excerpt that I chose here is just, um, just a decisional law kind of articulating that idea. So okay. in as much as every government is an artificial person, an abstraction and a creature of the mind only, a government can interface only with other artificial persons. The imaginary, having neither actuality nor substance, is foreclosed from creating and attaining parity with the tangible. The legal manifestation of this is that no government, as well as any law, agency, aspect, court, etc., can concern itself with anything other than corporate artificial persons and the contracts between them. So you might be wondering then if, you know, if this is the case, then how is it that people are becoming liable to, you know, government targeting them with statutes or, or mm -hmm. whatever the case may be? Well, it has to do with the way that person is defined and used in statute. So okay. it doesn't actually refer to the natural person. So I have some definitions here. Um, this first one uh, comes from Montana Code Annotated. So again, that's where we're. That's where the um, American Natural Rights Foundation is currently um, located. Mm -hmm. So it says, "Person means an individual, corporation, partnership, limited partnership, limited liability company, association, joint venture, 
state agency, local government unit, another state government, the United States, a political subdivision of this or another state, or any other legal or commercial entity. And so do you hear how all of those are, you know, artificial or created entities? So this next one comes from the Uniform Commercial Code, which is just a uniform code for uh, the law of sale, the laws of sales and um, commercial transactions. But um, person means an individual, corporation, business trust, estate, trust partnership, or trust, partnership, limited liability company, association, joint venture, government, governmental subdivision, agency or instrumentality, public corporation, or any other legal or commercial entity. And the next one comes from the United States Code. Um, the word person and whoever include corporations, companies, associations, firms, partnerships, societies, and joint stock companies. And this next one's from the uh, Nas or, um, yeah, National Labor Relations Act. So the word person by statute term may include a firm, labor organizations, partnerships, associations, corporations, legal representatives, trustees, trustees in bankruptcy or receivers. Um, and so in all of these, the only thing that you could think possibly could refer to a natural human being, right, mm -hmm. is the word individual. Right. But from Black's Law Dictionary, we've got individuals defined to be, as a noun, this term denotes a single person, as distinguished from a group or class. As an adjective, individual means pertaining or belonging to or characteristic of one single person, either in opposition to a firm, association, or corporation, or considered in his relation thereto. So again, do you see how individual is also an artificial entity that simply means a single person? So this is essentially the way, you know, see these, these um, uh, laws are not meant to apply to, you know, you or me, flesh and blood human beings. They're meant to apply to persons, if that makes sense. So like, and um, what's more, this last one, statutes employing the word person are ordinarily construed to exclude the sovereign. So even though the sovereign is a, a political entity and thus an artificial person, they are normally not included within the meaning of a uh, person in the statute. Hmm. Um, so hold on. So this kind of like goes back and forth for me. So essentially the only thing in these definitions that would lead you to believe that someone like you or I are subjected to, you know, these statutes would be this word individual. And so as defined as an individual, the term denotes a single person as distinguished from a group or class. As an adjective, individual means pertaining to or pertaining or belonging to or characteristic mm -hmm. of. So does that I'm 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 not I'm not connecting the dots here. Does that mean that essentially a single person for the, the purposes of this or or individual for the purposes of the legal definition has to do with only when you're singling out someone from a larger group? Like or is it so like for instance Okay, remember if I could cut you off, I apologize for interrupting. Um if you remember previously we just had it define what a person is right yeah so a person is all of these different things right a corporation um, a partnership a limited partnership limited liability company 
association, joint venture, state agency, local government unit, another state government. You hear those? Yeah. So it just, so individual just means a single one of those because those are what is a person. Okay. So what you're, so what you're basically saying is that individual is descriptive of, or a, a, um, an identifier of a single corporation or a single partnership or a single right. limited partnership. Right. Because okay. that's what a person is. Okay. Um, Okay. I, um, I would follow that. It also okay. seems so. For instance, if someone were to say, "Well, no, I disagree with that. I think that you know." Well, this is what it know, is by statute. Right. But, okay. but so what I'm saying is that last one that you have listed right there, statutes mm -hmm. employing the word "person" are ordinarily construed to exclude the sovereign. So essentially, right. that means that um, in excluding the sovereign, is that uh, essentially? Uh, uh, like a, a um, an inconsistency in the legal definition of what constitutes an individual or a person? No, because remember, their defining um, person or individual has to do with the scope of their authority, and the scope of their authority never included or incorporate or you know um, included uh, the sovereign. Okay, because. Like and, 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 and the distinction I'm making is because in that reference, the sovereign effectively means uh, a, a person that um, stands on their own, right? Like as an individual well, and we'll is not a there. part of any of these we're, other things. We're going right? to talk about that near the end. I apologize. I keep interrupting you. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. We are. We will, we will talk about that. We will define uh, what that is later. Okay. All right. I'm jumping so, the gun. <laughs> no, no worries at all. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, um, let's see here. Sorry, I'm just trying to see. Okay, so some terms that outline the same concept um, mm -hmm. as like person from the sovereign are um, sub potestate. And this comes from Latin, meaning under or subject to the power of another used of a wife, child, slave or other person not sui juris and sui juris, this would be uh, the sovereign. So sui juris, also from the Latin, of his own right, possessing full social and civil rights, not under any legal disability or the power of another or guardianship, having capacity to manage one's own affairs, not under legal disability to act for oneself. So like I said before though, um, if you're just in the state of nature, you know, you would just be called people. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So the whole, yes you know, word person mixing it with people. So like our, sorry, um, we've been taught in our, you know, common dictionaries that um, the singular for the word people is the word person. But right. in fact, the plural for the word person is not people, it's persons. Yeah. You see? And so what, you know, you might be wondering what is the singular for the word people? Well, in fact, it's actually also the word people. So, um, and I've seen this, you know, in, lots of old old text where it refers to a, a single individual as a people a people mm. it's interesting so anyways from webster's 1828 dictionary people as a noun is considered as any portion of the inhabitants of a city or country and uh, even even in the u.s code it states words importing the plural include the singular um, yeah so that's interesting so so mm -hmm. in a in a lot of cases folks would think that if something applies to 
um, uh, if, if something applies to everyone, right, like equally, right, they would think that it r applies to the people of the United States, right? But right. so what you're saying is in many cases there can be that um, lack of understanding as to the singular versus the plural, right? So like if it, if it applies to a people versus the people, um, those are two completely different things because you're talking about the singular versus the plural. Um, no, no, not necessarily. I mean, because you could say, um, not necessarily, because you could mean all of the people, uh, but as individuals, if that okay. makes sense. Okay, that so, makes sense. Like, yep. like your constitution. So um, anyway, so uh, let's see. Sorry, where were we? Starting so, with um, uh, Republic versus yeah, democracy. Yeah. So how, another way that we know that um, the common vernacular, the people refers um, to the singular, right? It, um, rather than the collective, um, that each individual people is a sovereign of the American government um, is from comparing the definition of Republic with that of a democracy, no less. So okay. when we look at the definition of Republic, mm -hmm. we see um, a form of government in which the powers of sovereignty are vested in the people and are exercised by the people, either directly or through representatives chosen by the people to whom those powers are specially delegated. And so democracy is defined to be that form of government in which the sovereign power resides in and is exercised by the whole body of free citizens, directly or indirectly, through a system of representation as distinguished from a monarchy, aristocracy, or oligarchy. And so what you're seeing in there, since we have a republic, um, our sovereignty is not in the whole body of free people, but rather in each individual, mm. right? And so this idea of democracy actually comes from our representatives, um, all of them or, or a quorum, uh, which is just essentially enough of them to constitute all of, um, all of them, uh, vote, right, with an equal vote, and they all rule by majority rule. So very much so, you know, like our government organization is democratic, but that idea is contained within the republic, which is the government that we actually have. Mm. Um, and and to that extent, so and forgive me if I'm maybe jumping ahead or or um, not fully kind of uh, enunciating this correctly, but so that also essentially means that the the idea that we live in this, and I think the the buzz phrase that is always taught to everyone is, okay, we live in a democratic republic, all right, and so I think folks miss just the layperson misses the fact that that democracy piece only really applies to the representatives or at least it, it more well so the 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 democracy um or the democrat let me say the de democratic process right more often than not plays out in terms of the representatives that are then voting on certain things whereas the, oh, the republic yeah. piece of it still prizes the individual above that process. And yeah, am I absolutely. saying that correctly? And, yep. And and the way that you know that is because when you look at the definition of person, it's not people. You see what I mean? The, pe yep. the, the persons they're trying to regulate, that is the persons that the democracy is in control of, are not people. They're artificial, imaginary 
right? Creatures of the mind, as we discussed in the beginning. Yeah. That, that being the only kind of um, uh, individual or entity that the government has the legal capacity to interact with. Hmm. I, and, and thereby, the only true um, collective or, or group of um, f uh, fictions that the government has direct control over and, or, or direct regulatory oversight over. Would you say that's true? I missed it. I missed it. What what was? I'm saying, or um, another way of also saying that, say, like the the government as as a as a fiction, essentially, right? Um, mm -hmm. Only really has dominion over or direct oversight over those other fictions, right? They don't they can only the interact with. The dominion has to do with whether those fictions come from uh, that that one's authority. Right. If and they're so, subordinate to, yeah. And so in that case, there's no real direct um, control or oversight over the people. Right. Jurisdiction right. would be, a, and, yes, that's and probably the way that, that works. The way that that works is that they would have, or, you know, for the people who are free sovereign people, um, or rather free people in the state of nature, or like, like it says, you know, not considered the sovereign, not considered within the term person, mm -hmm. um, uh, in statute, I mean, um, you would consider, oh shoot, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> That's um, all right. I... Sorry about that. Um, can you remind me where, what we were just, uh, yeah. So, um, just in terms of talking about like, you know, uh, jurisdiction over, the people versus, you know, jurisdiction over a sovereign not necessarily being um, not just the intent, but even possible, right? Like, so a, right. a fiction can't necessarily have direct oversight or jurisdiction over the sovereign. Right, that's correct. And we're going to actually, like I said, we're going to actually uh, more more clearly define and talk about uh, some of the dynamics that have to do with sovereign power. Okay. Awesome. Again, uh, so that, um, remember where it said that uh, in the definition of a republic, it said it was specially delegated. It said, um, to whom those, those powers, powers are specially delegated, right? So what that's saying is that there's a particular sphere of authority that has been given to them, right? And anything that comes or within that sphere of authority would legitimately be exposed to the liability of that authority. Mm. Okay. Anything outside of it, obviously, which would include the people or the sovereign, would not would not be exposed to any liability to it. Um, so um, there were two dominant political theories, um, uh, and they, uh, sorry, um, one of them was uh, the Republican, and um, this is where legitimacy was based on the um, degree of alignment with the natural law. And so those whose political uh, philosophy believed that the answer to any issue was in the absolute security of individual liberty. And remember, that's anything that your inclinations may suggest if it's not evil in itself and in no way impairs the rights of others. Mm -hmm. So, again, if it doesn't impair the rights of others, there's no reason to be regulated. Right. And I think this idea of is not evil in itself is like, like, imagine you might have heard that. Um, I don't even remember which one, but whether it was like Rothschild or some some banking elite, whatever, um, 
put out rumors about um, who had won the war, that Napoleon uh, had won the war, mm -hmm. and that this caused like a serious tanking in like English stocks. And um, as a consequence, you know, he bought up, you know, he, he made himself super rich and everybody, you know, lost a whole bunch because they all believed this rumor that him with a lot of clout was able to spread. Right. So like this to me, I think is what that phrase, if it's not evil in itself, even though it didn't necessarily take away from the rights of others. I think this is what it's saying. You know what I mean? By saying it's evil in itself is not something you have a right to do. But okay. anyways, yeah. So um, the competing philo political philosophy was federalism. And so for a federalist, legitimacy was based on um, vesting the sovereign power with an absolute authority over the states. Um, those whose political philosophy resembled that of England, which vested absolute political authority in the king. Mm -hmm. And so many of the Federalists um, maintained the old convention that the political elite were necessary to, you know, save ignorant and um, uneducated mankind from itself, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, they would end up utilizing this democratic aspect of our government to um, usurp the power of the federal government and expand it, in fact, mm -hmm. illegally. Um, so yeah, next, if you want, we can just get right into sovereign power. I know we've been itching at it the whole, the whole time. Yeah, no, I, and, and just before we get into that, I find just to draw a parallel to, I think some of the ignorance of the day and age, I think a lot of people would point to, um, the, the government that was put in place by the constitution. And I, you hear a lot of this from the folks that are, um, you know, talking about this, you know, kind of like. The United States being born out of this kind of like, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll say, you know, suprem white supremacist or, or racist kind of origins and things like that. And there were those elements to them. Um, and so this idea that like, you know, uh, the, the regardless of what you call it, the, the idea that, you know, federalists would keep those like wealthy elites in place just in case like the, you know, the idiots decided to do something and blow up the world, so to speak, or like ruin things, right? Um, uh, sorry, uh, I thought it, you were going to say yeah, something else. <laughs> no, so and uh, the the irony is that folks will point to that and say that that was the way things were set up, and then they will defer to rich, <laughs> like aristocrats, in order to remedy the situation. Um, but so I, I think that's the one piece that I would say is like one of the things where like if I identify someone as a federalist thinker, I'm immediately turned off to them because I, I, they, they are essentially um, they, they are not a believer in the individual. Right. They, they are a pessimist of the individual or at the very least they believe that it's potential. You know, there's potential there for the individual and, and collections of individuals to cause harm to, you know, the, the country or, or whatever, you know, kind of like dominion that you're looking at. I um, think, I, if I might, um, go ahead. I think it's actually maybe a difference between um, the Republican, that is the, the that, that one that would hold uh, individual rights absolute, right? Mm -hmm. Unconditional, no, no way to impair or affect them. Um, I think it's that that person has a um, a faith or some kind of confidence, right, in the mm -hmm. law. Mm -hmm. And I think this other person, um, and when I say the law, I just mean um, justice, right? Yeah. I mean, 
writing wrongs or keeping wrongs from happening, right? Yep. Whereas over here, um, I think these other people maybe don't even know about the law or don't trust the law or don't consider the law, but to them, their solution, because it doesn't come from the law, is a very powerful government and a very mm. controlling and decisive government, right? Yeah, yes. So I think that's the fundamental. And so then, yeah, obviously, they're, they're absolutely at... Um, at odds with each other yeah and and, <laughs> yeah. and the and also the the federalist way of thinking almost being um at odds with nature right like well right because the idea here is that the natural law is the epitome of what makes man happy right and again we're not talking about you know we're not i i think that could be abused a lot you know mm -hmm. this idea of what makes man happy right like what if it makes me happy to cut your head off right well yeah. again that would either be evil in itself or that would impair the rights of others so mm -hmm. it wouldn't actually be a natural right at law and again we're all trying to act honorably so even if your actions come to the harm of another person you would be there right there happy to to fix it and to correct it you know if you get in a car wreck with someone like are you unhappy that your insurance pays for it like Aren't you, you know, I mean, if you caused that wreck, like, yeah, you know, or if you didn't even have insurance, would you not pay for it? You know, you wouldn't try to get away with what you've done. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, I mean, anyways, I just see the, the natural law as being, you know, the epitome of that entire relationship between acting honorably and the, you know, the fundamental pursuit of man's happiness. And definitely that being contradictory with the more primitive concept of powerful government corrects all wrongs. Mm. Yes. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> we've been dancing around it. Um, all right. Sovereign power. All right. Sovereign power. So there's a, mac a maxim is a word you might have heard before, but it's essentially just a legal principle. Um, but a maxim is so-called because its dignity is chiefest and its authority is most certain. And because it is most approved by all. So a maxim relevant to our dis our discussion here is the power which is derived cannot be greater than that from which it is derived. So it doesn't matter that they um, right, expanded their authority or their powers because they didn't have the authority to do so. Um, and also the extension of that power over the sovereign is ludicrous because, again, the sovereign is the source of that power. Right. The sovereign yeah. is the one with the power who gave that specially delegated power to that, you know, person, that individual. Mm -hmm. So sovereignty is the supreme, absolute, and uncontrollable power by which any independent state is governed, the right and power of regulating its internal affairs without foreign dictation, the power to do everything in a state without accountability. And so I have some relevant decisional law here about sovereignty that's pretty self-explanatory, but um, feel free to stop me if you have any questions or if you want to talk about anything. No, uh, no, let's let's power through this. I, all I, right, so I the think... sovereignty of... Sorry, were you going to say one, one more thing? No, I was just going to say, I, I think the, the, the examples will hammer at home. So yeah, okay. definitely, don't let me stop you. <laughs> so the sovereignty of a state does not reside in the persons who fill the different departments of its government, but in the people from whom the government emanated, and they may change it at their discretion. Sovereignty, then, in this country, abides with the constituency and not with the agent. And this remark is true both in reference to the federal and state government. Mm. The words sovereign state are cabalistic words not understood by the disciple of liberty who has been instructed in our constitutional schools. 
It is our appropriate phrase when applied to an absolute despotism. The idea of sovereign power in the government of a republic is incompatible with the existence and foundation of civil liberty and the rights of property. And I want you to remember that later, right? The idea of sovereign power in the in the government. Well, it's also the ridiculousness of was the, also the ridiculousness of calling uh, calling it sovereign immunity when you're essentially giving immunity to a, a government body, right? The right. government body is not the sovereign. The, the sovereign immunity is supposed to be applied to the individual, but yes, yeah. Right. But anyways, we're going to talk, we're going to expand on this later, this idea that sovereign power in the government of a republic is incompatible with the existence and foundation of civil liberty and the rights of property. We're going to see how that very fact comes to real material um, realization in our law and legal system. But that's for the next, um, that's for the next time. <laughs> okay. Um, so at the revolution, the sovereignty devolved on the people, and they are truly the sovereigns of the country, but they are sovereigns without subjects, with none to govern but themselves. People are supreme, not the state. In the United States, sovereignty in the United States, sovereignty resides in people. The Congress cannot invoke the sovereign power of the people to override their will as thus declared. The people of this state, as the successors of its former sovereign, are entitled to all the rights which formerly belonged to the king by his prerogative. And the very meaning of sovereignty is that the decree of the sovereign makes law. And if you think about the king of England, right, he simply speaks and everybody has to obey him, right? Mm -hmm. this, you know, so that makes sense. But in America, it's actually similar. So if you remember the last time we talked about um, when a plaintiff files his um, first cause of action, there's that, um, that, that remember the authority of his claim is based on that detailed section called points and authorities, mm -hmm. where um, basically the points he'd make, which were based on reason, and the um, authorities he'd cite, so the points and the authorities would both basically act as the decree of the American sovereign, right? And um, it's not a decree that has to do with controlling everybody, right? They don't control everyone. They just control, they have the power to define the injuries that are done them, mm. right? So um, I, when I say power, I also in, include right. So the right and power to define the injuries done them. Mm. Um, so um, basically this along with the constitutions would be um, the sovereign people exercising their sovereign, their um, powers directly. Um, the doctrine of, and I don't mean all of their powers, I just mean that particular power to legislate. Mm -hmm. um, so the doctrine of sovereign immunity is one of the common law immunities and defenses that are available to the sovereign. In the last one, even the tribe's power to tax, were, um, even if the tribe's power to tax were derived solely from its power to exclude from the reservation, the tribe has the authority to impose severance tax. Non-Indians who lawfully enter tribal lands remain subject to a tribe's power to exclude them, which power includes the lesser power to tax or place conditions on the non-Indian's conduct or continued presence on the reservation. The tribe's role as commercial partner with petitioners should not be confused with its role as sovereign. It is one thing to find that the tribe has agreed to sell the right to use the land and take valuable minerals from it, and quite another to find that the tribe has abandoned its sovereign powers simply because it has not expressly reserved them through a contract. To presume that a sovereign forever waives the right to exercise one of its powers unless it expressly reserves the right to exercise that power in a commercial agreement turns the concept of sovereignty on its head. 
Yeah. So that that idea being that um, that you know in this particular case having to do with you know more so the the merits of tri- I guess trial tri- uh, tribal law and property right um, essentially is discussing you know taxing um, those that would come on and use the property but not but at the end of it it's basically saying that say there was no official communication made you can't just um, automatically presume that the sovereign is waiving its rights um unless it expressly says it is exactly right? exactly yeah. and so and so like you can't just uh, i mean the same would be true of anyone's property rights like just because mm-hmm. there's no fence up doesn't mean that you can just wander onto someone's exactly. property and use it yep. as you see fit yeah because it's a logical distinction not a physical one okay um yeah yeah spot on with that um and and in fact we're gonna i'm so excited i can't wait till we get through the other information that i think should come first but we're going to talk about what makes a valid waiver it's one of my favorite favorite things mm-hmm. but yeah so the next um section it's it's just like the the others but it's it's all pretty self-explanatory but you can feel free to stop me you know um so unconstitutionality um, the sixth article of the Constitution of the United States declares that the laws made in pursuance of it shall be the supreme law of the land. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. By this declaration, the states are prohibited from passing any acts which shall be repugnant to the law of the United States which pursue the Constitution. And I'm going to actually skip the next one because it essentially says what that what that says. So. Mm-hmm. The third one, Marbury, Marbury, or sorry, yeah, <laughs> the particular phraseology of the Constitution of the United States confirms and strengthens the principle, supposed to be essential to all written constitutions, that a law repugnant to the Constitution is void, and that and that courts as well as other docu- departments are bound by that instrument. In declaring what shall be the supreme law of the land, the Constitution itself is first mentioned and not the laws of the United States generally, but those only which shall be made in pursuance of the Constitution have that rank. So remember, um, I just want you to, to see that basically every time you've ever heard a, a decision come about and you're like, what, that is obviously not correct. That, that violates uh, an amendment, say, mm. right? It would be right subordinate to all the rest of the laws, right? It would not actually have the same controlling force um, at law, because it's it's a subordinate authority, um, and in fact, like this is saying, if it's in fact violative of it, you know, it's it's entirely void. It's not even just you know, well, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's literally it, irrelevant. It's it's essentially giving a rational explanation why unconstitutional laws should just be ignored. Yep, right? exactly. Like, they they have absolutely no credible standing, and therefore. Um, you know, you can essentially act as if they just don't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here, yeah, <laughs> let me read on. You're going sure. to love this. So it's to continue that one, it says, all law, all laws which are repugnant to the Constitution are void. So I keep losing my place. Since the 14th Amendment to the Constitution states, no jurisdiction shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the rights, privileges, or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor deprive any citizens of life, liberty, or property without due process of law or equal protection under the law. The enumeration, the con- so that one is essentially just like in the positive law, all of those same rights being secured 
that existed in the natural law. And one of one thing that I found interesting when kind of researching about um, political theorizers of the natural law is that um, they would say that there doesn't need to be a positive law that mirrors any natural law, and that the the uh, you know, philosophical argument for this is that no laws of man can give any more force or right to the laws that God has already established. So that's why you won't find, you know, it's against the law to murder someone in England, because mm -hmm. that's just against the general law or against, you know, the, um, the universal law, rather than needing to be against the particular laws of England, the particular positive laws, right, of the government of England. Right. Anyways, um, Let's see here. So the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And so that's the U.S. Constitution. That's the Ninth Amendment. So basically, by this, all rights that are retained by the people are constitutionally protected rights. Mm. Okay. Um, this is why I think the Ninth Amendment, I, I understand a lot of people give a lot of focus to the Tenth Amendment. But honestly, I feel like the Ninth Amendment is far more powerful because if you're not a state, I mean... Well, yeah, and, yeah. and so essentially the the Ninth Amendment is um, it's it's essentially stating the 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 sovereign nature of the individual. Yep. Right. Uh, and yep. and essentially saying that of the people, you know, or, or you know, the Tenth is simply talking about, you know, uh, essentially the balance of of power between the state and the federal government. This goes all the way down to basically the ground floor, so to speak, the foundation of the country, saying that essentially, you know, there you're you're not allowed to deny or disparage others uh, retained by the uh, any of those rights retained by the people, and that that would be superior, like from a hierarchical standpoint, than even the Tenth Amendment or any of the other powers that are ceded to the federal government. I, I, I well, agree with you, you there. Remember, I'm, I don't have the 10th Amendment up here, but I'm pretty sure the 10th Amendment in the, in the second part of it uh, says, or to the people. So it, it also is inclusive of that. But but mm -hmm. you'd be absolutely right in, when it came to like, uh, I mean, you got a vaccine law coming about or you got some gun rights laws coming, you know, like all of, all of that would absolutely be, you know, included within what you're talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, let's see here. So where rights secured by the Constitution are involved, there can be no rulemaking or legislation which would abrogate them. So remember, we might you might have remembered uh, last time we talked about um, administrative law or mm -hmm. or policy. So that might be what what they're saying rulemaking. So legislation being the statutes, the codes. And the rulemaking is like, or even if it's just like local mm -hmm. custom, right? Mm -hmm. That would all be included in that saying it cannot deny or, you know, that it cannot, um, you know, sorry, it cannot abrogate them, cannot abrogate constitutional rights. Mm -hmm. So um, an unconstitutional act is not law. It confers no rights. It imposes no duties. It affords no protection. It creates no office. It is in legal contemplation as inoperative as though it had never been passed. So pretty powerful, but very obvious and, you know, unavoidable in my eyes. You, you can't yeah. really get around that, you know. And, and this particular clause here, it creates no office. 
remember that this is um, a reference back to, you know, color of law, that you cannot, um, you know, under color of office or color of any statute, you know, infringe upon people's individual rights um, or liberties. And uh, no, no amount of a thing written on a piece of paper when it is violative of the Constitution affords an individual that office, right? Or that, mm -hmm. what that saying is that power. Yeah. So um, a practice condemned by the Constitution cannot be saved by historical acceptance and present convenience. So like you think of slavery with this one, right? It was not saved by historical acceptance or present convenience. So I think about like, um, you know, the natural right to use an automobile, right? So like what this to me, I understand that if this was to be ended, the state would be so drastically impacted by the loss of revenue, right? Mm that it would have to drastically reconfigure what it was going to do, replan and everything. And I'm okay with that. The same way that people, you know, who were fighting against slavery would, you know, the, the Southerners were like, yeah, but all our money is tied up in the slaves and, and, you know, they do the work on the plantations. And so all of our businesses are tied up in the slaves. And, and so the North are like, yeah, we get that. We don't care. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, so, and, and that's also interesting because, so a lot of times, say at the Supreme Court level, they will talk about, and I forget what the term is, but essentially the idea that if they were to find something to be constitutional or unconstitutional, it comes about in terms of um, when they were talking about Amy Coney Barrett and if any of these like Affordable Care Act um, cases make it to the Supreme Court. Um, and they and during her questioning, they basically uh, during her vetting, they questioned her and asked if she would take into account the potential impact to individuals if, say, they had become reliant on something that was unconstitutional, right? Um, mm -hmm. Which is interesting because here it's basically saying that regardless of historical convention, like it could go back from this beginning of time, but mm -hmm. just because it's been around forever does not, does not mean that it should be preserved despite right. being and unconstitutional. Right? It also says, or present convenience. So there's no argument about like, oh, but it would really suck to do that. Like, yeah. that's not an argument. That can't stand. There's no legitimacy there. And this like, is a fairly recent, I mean, like 1984 is fairly recent historically mm -hmm. in terms of legal precedent. So Right. Um, so let's see. The statutory procedures reflect the obvious concern that there be no sanction or penalty imposed upon one because of his exercise of constitutional rights. It's been long established that a, stat, a state may not impose a penalty upon those who exercise a right guaranteed by the Constitution. Hmm. There can be no sanction or penalty imposed upon one because of this exercise of constitutional rights. The general rule is that the unconstitutional statute though having the form and name of law, is in reality no law, but is wholly void and ineffective for any purpose, since unconstitutionality dates from the time of its enactment and not merely from the date of the decision so branding. No one is bound to obey an unconstitutional law and no courts are bound to enforce it. And so this to me is just like, it's right on point saying that like at every level of our political society, we have the power, every single individual is empowered to refuse to enforce or judge or act on unconstitutional things. Mm. So if there's a whole bunch of unconstitutional stuff happening, it's either happening through ignorance 
or it's happening because there are that many corrupt people in existence. And I would, I would imagine it's the ignorance, you know, but, but that's what it would have to mean. Let's see. So a constitution is designated as a supreme enactment, a fundamental act of legislation by the people of a state. A constitution is legislation direct from the people acting in their sovereign capacity, while a statute is legislation from the representatives, subject to limitations prescribed by the superior authority. The authority of legislation in the state government is not unlimited. There are several limitations to their, leg to their legislative authority. First, from the nature of all government, especially of, a, of Republican government, in which the residuary powers of sovereignty not granted specifically, again, you hear that, specifically, yeah. uh, by inevitable implication, are reserved to the people. Secondly, from the express limitations contained in the state constitutions. And thirdly, from the express prohibitions to the states contained in the United States Constitution. So... So a lot, a lot of uh, th this continually comes up, right? The the I, I'm going to ask you more of a in practice type of question now. So this continually comes up through this case law, the the idea of essentially the the you know laws or edicts that or or you know constraints that are essentially against the Constitution and also therefore or, or not also therefore but and also against you know, the, the rights of the sovereign, right? The, the natural rights of the sovereign, um, that they are essentially invalid. They should not be enforced. Um, the sovereign should be able to effectively ignore them and, and not necessarily have to abide by them. Mm -hmm. Um, so what, what would you say to someone who, um, says, oh, well, you know, the Supreme court saw this case, um, and they said that it wasn't a violation of the Constitution. Um, would you then take them the route of saying, well, even if they don't find that it violates the Constitution, there is also uh, essentially the, the hierarchy of law that says before you even get to the Constitution, you have to start with natural rights before you even talk about whether or not something is constitutional or not. True. Is, is that but the direction also you would go with that? Um, well, I would actually question the cause which allowed them to determine it was unconstitutional. Because if you thought it was, then maybe there was actually something unconstitutional there. And if it was truly, in substance, unconstitutional, then that would just be another bad decision. Yeah. Right? Another decision that has no force or effect. He would just See, be included in with the corrupt. You know, and so you might go after it with a counterclaim, making him a defendant, you know, saying... By what right do you have to bring me into this court? I'm going to bring you, actually, I challenge the jurisdiction. I demand to be released from it. I'm actually going to sue you in this court of record mm -hmm. on the basis of having no jurisdiction. Now, later we're going to talk, potentially we're going to talk about some other kind of process. This is what we've been working on, but we, we might actually um, have different things to offer in the future. But essentially what we've been working on, it would be this countersuit in a court of record. Um, and that, you know, person who was the judge who decided it wasn't constitutional would simply be included in the defendants, you know, the list of defendants you were already, I, you know. I, I can't wait for the uh, first action taken directly against a Supreme Court justice right. <laughs> based off the fact that they found <laughs> something be to be constitutional. Um, and, and someone argues they have lack of jurisdiction. I think that's also 
the 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 other um the other thing that i think about is more kind of like the um maybe it's the anarchist in me or, or whatnot but i go back to one of our first conversation and just talk about like well this thing was never um re-ratified or repassed after the first generation so therefore it's not even a valid contract anymore right like, we're going to talk about that next time when we talk about what is a citizen and uh, basically, well, yeah, I can save it for later. We can talk about it now. You let me know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you can preview if it, if, you, if you want, but I definitely well, don't want to steal our thunder I mean, from next week. I mean, uh, there are very, very old cases where judge Supreme Court ca cases where judges have determined that to be born, you know, on the soil, there's old common law principle just solely that if you're born in the, on, on the soil of the territory, which the sovereign, you know, controls then uh, you would be considered a citizen by common law. And uh, two issues with that, though, is that, um, well, first of all, um, well, okay, so if you were born on this soil, right, the idea that it's that you're a citizen um, would actually be true because you're not actually, um, you're, you're a human being, but you're not actually a um an adult right mm -hmm. and the difference between a baby and an adult is real in the law right babies can't do anything for themselves so in fact the state has always been empowered under a principle called parents patriot to uh take over you know control of you know i think it's infants uh idiots and lunatics which is the old english of you know basically saying uh you know infants people who are too young to be able to have discretion in mm -hmm you know, action and um, idiots. So people with mental handicaps and lunatics, also people with mental handicaps, right? Mm -hmm. So um, essentially the state has always had the right to intervene in their, in their behalf, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, the other thing um, to do with it. So basically their, their idea is that, you know, if you're born here, you would be, you know, considered um, you would you would be considered not necessarily under the control of the government, but the, the government would be acting in your behest, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And um, so it, that makes sense. But again, once you come to years of discretion, that would lose its art. It's, you know, if you're not, you know, mentally handicapped or mentally ill, then that would lose all its force, right? Right. Um, and the only thing, like you were mentioning before, the only thing that could then bind you would be the act of your parents. But again, when you come to years of discretion, if you're not pre, if you're not represented with that option, um, and that option is essentially, it's not which candidate are you going to vote for or which political party are you going to be. It's whether you want to be under the control of that government or not. And that question if it's answered one way or the other, either gives you legitimate government, a de jure government, or an illegitimate government, a de facto government, a, a government by the fact that they have power to yeah. act as if they were in control of you. Yeah. Well, I, we, we will, we can definitely cover that um, <laughs> in more depth uh, in, in the next one or two uh, episodes here. So, no, I, I, I think the the effectiveness of of this information i think is really important in terms of establishing the the true line in the sand right so like i think for a lot of people in practice this idea of trying to um uh 
think of what is natural law or the natural rights of a human being, right? Like uh, of an of an individual or of a sovereign. Well, remember, it comes down to those three things. Anything that your inclination suggests, mm -hmm. if it's not evil in itself, and it in no way impairs the rights of others. Mm. So I could agree there's some discretion that could be applied to what it means evil in itself. But I did try to give that example that I think there are things you're going to see that fundamentally affect, you know, humanity, but aren't necessarily a, a particular infringement of individual other others' rights. And yeah. so while you have, you know, that last clause that it in no way impairs the rights of others, you have this other thing that says it's not evil in itself, but essentially anything that your inclination suggests is what is appropriate in the natural law. Again, considering everyone to be acting honorably, you have no reason to control anyone. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's the, this, this subject matter, I think is good from the standpoint of it allows, it gives people an opportunity to have a little bit more of a, um, not concrete, but something they can wrap their heads around, as opposed to that kind of like ethereal manifestation or, or you know, enacting the, the the sacred phrase of like you know natural rights, um, and so I I I like that. So we're we're continuing to kind of like build the bricks as we go, which is which is fantastic. So, um, all right, cool. Uh, we, we're gonna be back in two weeks with another one of these. Um, there. Uh, your your uh, endeavors right now with um, ANRF are um, still in the research phase, right? You're still kind of going That's through correct. things. Um, it's possible that soon, if uh, we're kind of looking into um, new leads uh, <laughs> uh, that you yourself are aware of, but um, yeah. depending on how those turn out, um, we might actually be moving into phase uh, two pretty quickly and. Um, Included in that would be offering um, public classes, essentially, start teaching people like this is more or less like fundamental um, philosophy, right? That's yeah. what that's what we're trying to teach here to give people the idea of being able to make determinations and assertions based on their own reasoning and merit, right? Or the, the merit of their own reasoning. They don't need to go and look. What did they say? What did they say? What did they say? No, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is what's reasonable to us. What did our inclinations say to us was reasonable that in no way impaired the rights of others and wasn't evil in itself, right? You see what I mean? Yep. And so, yeah. Um, so being able to give them that kind of like grounding, you know, that now no one can then come and be like, oh, well, we voted on this. And that means that You'll be like, no, it doesn't. Your vote yeah. is irrelevant. It's basically yeah. useless. We can ignore it. Thanks for, you know, thanks for wasting your time on something that was irrelevant instead of something that actually mattered. Because yeah. now we can just ignore you instead of having to actually deal, you know, with what, what, whatever you had. Yeah. Um, and you know, and uh, the other part of it, if if like I was saying, this new lead kind of pans out the way that we think it it will. Um, we might actually be able to provide um, the uh, more of the procedure, right? What you're actually going to go and do in order to affect your situation rather than the philosophy, which legitimizes your situation, you know, what you would yep. do about your situation. Yep. Yeah. No, I, yep. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And, and yes, we, we have uh, someone that we're looking to talk to um, that I think yeah. has that procedural thing 
down or at least is working it out. So um, yeah, you know, that- it's it's basically like there are all sorts of what I found in kind of taking these things to court was there are all sorts of things that bind. Like, look, everything I've read to you is from the law. I didn't invent yeah. any of this stuff. This is literally all written. It's all right there for you. You know what I mean? Like. If you just go and you research the law, you know what I mean? You, there's so much stuff, but in particular, there's all these different bodies which basically um, create that administrative law. I was telling you, right? It's the law for you know, the, the artificial entity um, for government agents usually. And yep. so it's basically the policy they use to do you know whatever they're doing. And so, um, oh shoot, I, of course, I was gonna lose my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm really tired today. So that's okay. I no, but th- that makes sense. It's the the idea being that you know we lay the groundwork with the philosophy and and with kind of the the foundational knowledge and legitimize um, the the standing for saying these things, and then you know like you oh. said, we start to get into more application to essentially um, you know like you were talking about, there's literally numerous ways that you can essentially work within the process right now because mm-hmm. it's so broken, but you can exploit those aspects of the process mm-hmm. in and order like to was, get to an actual good say, resolution. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. I, could, I, was, I remembered what I was going to say, but uh, it essentially, um, when you are, you know, looking around at, at what, what there is, you'll find there's all sorts of groups or like I was saying, like bodies that take it upon themselves to create this administrative law for those more subordinate entities. And I mean, they, they're great. Like, the, you know, the kind of demands upon a public official that are actually written are so extensive and like in, intense. Like a judge not only has to avoid impartiality, right? So that is... Um, giving preference, uneven preference, okay? Yeah. Um, partiality is giving uneven preference. He has to not only be impartial, right? He has to be a judge who's not going to give preference to the parties, but he's got to be, he's got to avoid even the impression of um, of impartiality. So yeah. he can't even be seen going into a particular place because it might give the impression that's against the code of judicial conduct in some states. So yeah. like, you see what I'm saying? Like the, the things that already exist in the law, that there are particular bodies that literally got together to make administrative law for those entities. They're just, you know, it's, it's pretty good what you can do to them. Yeah. Well, I we're definitely gonna go further down the road of providing some more foundational knowledge as well as potentially getting into at least a couple of those, you know, application type situations or, or what they yeah. might look like in general. So um, I, a reminder, um, everyone, uh, if you uh, have made it to the end of the recording, or if you're still with us live or watching the recorded version, remember to uh, hit the like button, helps us with the algorithm and subscribe. Uh, Josiah is going to be back in two weeks on Thursday night at the uh, same time. And we will talk some more uh, natural rights. So with yeah. that, this is my last show for the week. I'm not doing Fridays anymore. So um, I, it's almost like a three-day vacation every single week nice. now. <laughs> <laughs> I can go back and work my nine-to-five job now. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> so uh, look, Josiah, have a good evening. Everyone else, have a good evening. And uh, I will see everyone Monday. Thanks so much, Matt. Have a good night. Thank you again for tuning in. 
This is a quick reminder to subscribe, like, share, and comment to help get the message of liberty and freedom in front of as many folks as possible. See you next time on Why Libertarian. Thank you.